I'm glad you're here. Here is a person I wanted you to get to know. His name is Richard Steve Moser III. And yes, that is a spaghetti strainer on his head. And the reason that Richard Moser is wearing said spaghetti strainer is he is a Pastafarian. Pastafarians are members of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. You may not have known about this church. You didn't know that did not why they existed. They exist entirely to make fun of organized religion. That's why they exist. And so he went down to the Department of Motor Vehicles in his state to get his driver's license renewed. He needed a picture. He insists that he have his picture with his pasta strainer on his head as his religious right. And now it's a court case. And the American Humanist Association is taking up his side of the battle. And just when you thought truth couldn't get any stranger, right? We're talking about battles going on over pastafarians. We're talking these days in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking with us about how to deal with people with whom we disagree how to deal with people with whom we have challenges. Sometimes the challenges are our fault. You may have heard about this uh, study that's going on right now. If you need $3,300 and don't mind getting the flu, there are some researchers that would like to talk to you because they want to give you the flu so that they can study its effects in your body and they will pay you $3,300. Last time I had the flu, I'd have paid $33,000 not to have the flu, but be that as it may. Other challenges we face are clearly not our fault. I saw this story this morning. This is Rosalind. Rosalind is a medical assist dog who is owned by a retired military veteran in Arlington, but will these have no lead recently. Of all the things to steal. And police have no leads, and they're asking for the help of the public. Not all the news is bad news. You may have seen this. This is Matthew McConaughey, in case you didn't know, in case you've been living in a cave the last 30 years. Matthew McConaughey, who made the news this week, not for a movie or a Lincoln Continental ad or some such, but because he joined a group of volunteers in making turkey dinners last Friday, 800 of them, for firefighters battling blazes in the Los Angeles area. Feed the homeless. And then they made another 800 Thanksgiving dinners to feed the homeless as well. He will be permanently remembered by these firefighters, not for his last movie, but for his last act of kindness. You will change the culture more by kindness than perhaps any other single thing in such a conflicted day, right? So Jesus is talking to us about how to deal with people with whom we disagree, people who hurt us, people who, who malign us, people who slander us. He's not talking, I said this last week, he's not talking in judicial terms. We're not talking about crime here. We're not talking about violence in that sense. We're talking about personal animosity. The person that lies about you, the person that slanders you, the person that speaks of you in an unkind way. Last week he told us what not to do when he said don't return hurt for hurt. Don't return hate the most. This week he'll tell us what to do. And what we're about to see might be the most controversial, countercultural thing Jesus ever said. So how do we love our enemies? Here we are in Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, Scripture consistently says to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19, 18, it's one of the two great commands. Love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule do to others as you'd have them do to you. That's a common idea. But they also had been taught in Jesus' day. They believed that was an actual teaching of the rabbis 
of the day. They believed that all non-Jews were the enemies of Jews. Now, they had good reason to believe that because the Jews had been persecuted by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians, and they were right now in Jesus' period living under Roman oppression. So the Jewish rabbis had taught the Jews to hate all non-Jews. There were people known as bruised and battered rabbis. They'd be walking down the street, and if they thought they might look upon a Gentile, they would close their eyes and walk into a wall. Therefore, called bruised and battered rabbis. I'm not kidding. Jews did not want Jewish women to help Gentile women in childbirth because that would just bring another Gentile into the world. They considered Gentiles firewood for hell, and Gentiles returned the favor and still have over these centuries anti-Semitism, right? So Jesus is describing the culture of who hate you. The hours. Isn't it a lot easier to love people that love you than people who hate you? Isn't it a whole lot easier to hate the people who hate us? Isn't it a whole lot easier to want to punish people who punish us or hurt people who hurt us? Isn't that just human nature? That's why this verse is relevant today, not just in Jesus' day. And here's what he says about it. I tell you, it's emphatic in the Greek, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the same thing twice. Love the main way that emphasis was done was by repetition. Jesus is saying the same thing twice. Love your enemies by praying for them is a way to say that. Or pray for your enemies because you love them. They go together. They're not two separate commands. They're two sides of the same coin. They're two wings of the same airplane. Love your neighbors, love your enemies rather, by praying for your enemies. And what you'll discover is it's hard to hate someone you're praying for. The more you pray for somebody who's hurt you, the more you find yourself loving them. And the more you love them, the more you pray for them. Think how different the world would be if everybody did that. Well, why should we do this? We ask Jesus. He continues. Let's go over to here. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. A good father loves his And he gives us some examples. Children love him or not. A good father treats his children well, even if they don't treat him well. And he gives us some examples. Your father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? In picking on tax collectors, Jesus isn't talking about IRS agents who help you file your Form 1090 or whatever the thing might happen to be. He's talking about the people most hated of everybody in the culture of the day. Not just because they collected tax, but because... And the way it did it was this. So the Roman Empire expanded itself primarily so it could make more money. And the way it did it was this. They would take over some area, let's say Palestine, Israel. They would make the people pay taxes to the Romans. Well, they discovered that when they sent some tax collector from Rome over to Jerusalem that didn't know the language, the culture, the people, they could be cheated really easily. So they could always find a turncoat. Somebody who lived in that village who knew the people, who knew where you kept your money, who knew about that flock on the other side of those hills over there, who knew about the inheritance that you received that you're hiding from the authorities. They could always find a turncoat who would make you pay tax to the Romans and charge anything on top he wanted for himself, and the Roman soldiers would defend his right to do so. Anything they want, collectors of Jesus' day. They could charge you in tax anything they wanted. And as long as Rome got their cut, they could keep the rest. That's why it was so scandalous that one of Jesus' disciples was Matthew the tax collector. 
and that Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Because they weren't just doing a necessary, though unpopular job. They were turncoats. They were Jewish rabbis collecting taxes for Hitler from their fellow Jews. That, of course they do. But even they, Jesus says, love the people that love them. Of course they do. So if you're only going to love the people who love you, you're not doing anything different than the worst form of humanity in the culture. That's his point. And then he makes it again, reinforces it this way. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. The very enemies I talked about a moment ago that the Jewish rabbis taught the Jewish people to hate. If you greet only your own people, if you only greet your fellow Jews, well, you're not doing anything more than the pagans do when they greet their fellow pagans. If you want to be different, don't just love your neighbor, love your enemy, Jesus says. And if you will do this, here's the last verse of Matthew, the Greek word translates, you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, let's talk about that for a second. The Greek word translated perfect is teleos in the Greek. It means you will fulfill your purpose. It doesn't mean you'll be sinless. There's no promise here toward that, I'm sorry to say. It's not that if you'll pray for your enemies, you'll therefore be sinless. The Bible says, whoever says he's without sin makes himself a liar and the truth is not in him. It says you'll fulfill your purpose because the reason you exist is to love God and love others. That's your purpose. You may remember Rick Warren's well-known best-self. And your neighbor bases the whole thing on the two great commandments. Love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is whoever's next to you. Neighbor, neighbor, whoever you see next. That's your purpose. That's why you're here. We're not here to make money. We're here to make money as a means to the end of loving God and others. We're not here to be healthy. To the degree we have health, it's to be used to love God and love others. I'm not up here right now talking just to do the job I volunteered to do. I'm up here to do this to love God and love you. Your purpose is to love God and others. And to the degree that you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you are doing what you were made to do. And that's what Jesus says to do. So I'm looking at your faces right now and you're thinking, oh, I have some enemies I'd rather not love. Way back, I have some people I'd really rather not pray for right now. I happened to be preaching on this very subject way back in the day. We were at Park City's Baptist, and Osama, for some reason, Osama bin Laden was in the news these days, in these particular days. And I got home, and Janet, my wife, said to me, I want you to know I'm praying for Osama bin Laden in light of your sermon. And I was kind of proud that she said that. She said, I'm praying for a bomb to land right on his head. <laughs> and I said, I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says, pray for those who persecute you. I don't think that's the idea, is pray for them to get what they're due, Jesus had in mind. So how in their head? That would be like Janet, but I don't think, that's, don't think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. So how do we do this? If we're not going to pray for bombs to land on people's head, how are we going to do this? We'll I have a book to recommend we'll talk about very briefly. This is written, actually edited by Everett Worthington. It's kind of the classic book on forgiveness, Dimensions of Forgiveness, Psychological Research and Theological Perspectives. When he put the book out, he had no idea how much he would need it personally. Not long after it was published, his elderly mother was clubbed to death by a burglar using a crowbar and a baseball bat. And he had to apply personally the advice that the book offers. He offers you the acronym around the word REACH, R-E-A-C-H. 
It's astounding to me how much his advice parallels what Jesus taught us today, even though he is in no sense writing a theology book. It's amazing how who's hurt. the R of reach is to recall the hurt. Who's hurt you most recently or most deeply? I don't mean that metaphorically. I don't mean that rhetorically. Who has hurt you most deeply or most recently? Who comes to mind? Recall that hurt. Name it. Jesus says, love your enemies. He assumes you'll have some. He doesn't say, love your enemies if you happen to have any. Recall the hurt. Name it. Then hurt is right down. Counselors will tell us one good thing to do when we've been hurt is write down as specifically as possible how we were hurt and how much it hurt. Get it out. Lance the wound. Express the pain. Don't keep it bottled up. Buddhists have a saying, the eyes, the body weeps the tears the eyes refuse to shed. The body weeps the tears the eyes refuse to shed. Don't keep it in. It will only fester. The malignancy will only grow. The wound will only get more infected. The R of reach is recall the hurt. Be very specific. Charles Swindoll says, tell God on them. <laughs> Say to God, God, I am so upset that. I am so hurt by. Then they, it may help to write it down, to actually put it into literal words. Recall the hurt. Then the E according to Worthington, is empathize with the other. And that's hard. But Jesus says, love your enemies. The Greek word he uses is agape, which is the word not philios. Philios is friendship love. Agape is the unconditional commitment to wish the other well. To empathize with the other is to ask God, help me to see this through his eyes. Help me to understand they may not justify the action. Help me to understand his circumstances. They may not justify the action, but they might help explain it. A counselor once told me there's always one thing more we don't know. Always one thing more we don't know. That if I knew that, I might understand. Still wouldn't explain, even certainly excuse necessarily, but at least I might understand. Ask God to help me empathize. Why did they feel this way? Why did they act this way? Why did they say this? And then the A is the altruistic gift of forgiveness. It's choosing to give, and the very reason it's a gift is because it's not deserved. And Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. That's your altruistic gift of forgiveness. I'll be personal about that. There were a couple of folks in the last church we pastored. We were there 11 years and loved the church and still be there today if God intended us to be there. And they had issued people in the church who particularly had been difficult over the course of our ministry, and they had issues in their own lives I won't get into, and some real struggles in their homes and all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, they had made it difficult for pastors there. They just had always done that. In some churches, there are people who they say are always one pastor behind. <laughs> They're always very supportive of the last pastor. But if you ask the last pastor, they were supportive of the pastor before him, you know, and they're always one pastor behind. And uh, they just kind of think their job is to hold the pastor accountable or to, anyway, this just can be difficult. They're just usually some problem people in every church. None here. It works. Amen. That's right. Amen. And here. And that forever shall be, right? Isn't that how that works? Amen. That's right. Amen. We have a deacon, by the way, in case you wondered. And our deacon just agreed, right? So we decided to make Brian a deacon. I don't know what that means. He doesn't know what it means, but I don't know either. But now we have one, whatever that means. So nonetheless, so we have these people. And um, I 
dawned on me, I don't know why I was in this context, but for some reason I was thinking about this. It was several years after we left the church to start the ministry we do now, and I realized I had never prayed for God to bless them. I had forgiven them as best I understood in the sense of pardoning them, choosing not to punish them, choosing not to respond in kind, choosing not to strike back, choosing not to respond to hurt with hurt. I had done that by God's grace, but I'd never given the altruistic gift of forgiveness. I'd never prayed for their best. I'd never prayed for God. But I will tell you, and that was hard to do. But I will tell you, I felt a release the day I finally did. I felt a burden lifted that I didn't know I was carrying. I felt a sense of freedom. Now, I'd love to tell you I don't need to keep doing that, but I do, because it comes back. And what it does, if you pray for those who persecute you, if you pray for their wellness, if you pray for God's blessing, if you pray for their best, you're doing it for their sake, but even more, I'm here to tell you, you're doing it for your sake. You're letting yourself out of pretty good chance they went on with their life. Pretty good chance they don't even know you're harboring that grudge all these years later. Pretty good chance they went on with their life, and you're the one who's still angry about it. And if you let them out of your jail, you'll discover you were the one in the jail. Altruistic gift of forgiveness. Then the C, very quickly in the reach, is make that commitment public. So Jesus speaks of greeting your own people, as pagans do. That's a public thing. Jesus speaks about loving those who love you in the public context of that. The book suggests that we make this public to them or about them. One counselor in the book even suggests that you write out a covenant of forgiveness that you offer to the person that says to them, you did this. But in spite of that, I am choosing to offer forgiveness and I'm making that commitment, that covenant with you. Now, how they respond is theirs. Don't think to yourself, well, they'll never respond appropriately. They may well not. That may be why the problem exists. But you've done your job. You've opened the jail. They may choose not to leave the prison, but you've opened the jail. And you've set yourself free. And so the, the idea is to make this a public commitment in some way, in whatever way seems appropriate. And God will lead you. And then last, hold on to the choice to forgive. When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, these are present tense imperatives. These ridge, as we're starting the Sermon on the Mount, isn't something you get done today. We haven't solved this because we crossed this bridge as we're starting the Sermon on the Mount, and now forgiveness is done for us. Now, we don't have to worry about this again. You'll never have this issue again with anybody in the present, past, or future. That is not realistic, of course. So the next time the hurt comes back, once again, we do what the outline says. We recall it. We seek for God's eyes to empathize. We choose to pray for the person. We make that commitment public in whatever way is appropriate, and we continue to do that. And what will happen over time is the pain really will lessen. The hurt really will be less strong. And over time, we'll feel the freedom we would find in no other way. This is Corey Ten Boom's family, Christ, 1905. Christian family, remarkably committed to Christ. When Nazis started imprisoning Jews, the Ten Booms chose to harbor Jews in their home at the risk of their own lives. They were discovered. They were arrested. Mr. and Mrs. Ten Boom were killed upon arrival at the concentration camp to which they were sent. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to Ravensbrück, where Betsy starved to death. 
for everybody in her code, only because of a clerical error. The next week, she found out later, everybody in her code was sent to the gas chambers. Corey Ten Boom spent the rest of her life grappling with this and traveling the world talking about forgiveness, the importance, the need of forgiveness. And she had a metaphor for that that I wanted to close with today. She said that forgiveness is like a rope on a bell. When you've been hurt, you want the world to know it. You want to strike back. You want somehow to get what they deserve. You want somehow to get the eye for eye. You want somehow to hurt as you've been hurt. And you're pulling on this rope of pain, and you're clanging on the bell, and you want the whole world to know what you're doing. And the harder you pull, the more people know. And the more you're letting out the anger, and the more angry you get, and the more frustration you're This is letting go of the rope. Problem is, for a while, the bell keeps clanging. But if you'll keep your hands off the rope, eventually the bell will fall silent. And she makes this point. Forgiveness is not what you feel. It's what you do. It's letting go of the rope. Well, do you know anyone in all of human history who let go of the rope more graciously than the Lord Jesus does us? So we're going to close. And Scripture says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we're going to close today with the Lord's Supper as we do the first Sunday of each month. And as we do this, we're going to remember the one who prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The one who is right now at the right hand of the Father, ever living to intermix intercession for us right now. Did you know Jesus is praying for you right now? And we're going to ask Jesus to help us love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as he did. Join me as we pray. Close your eyes and open your heart to the Father for just a moment as we prepare to take the supper of our Lord. Who's on your heart right now? Who hurt you? Would you identify that hurt right now? Identifies with that payment. Would you right now ask God to help you empathize with that person? See them as God sees them. Would you ask God for his eyes? Would you ask God to help you right now to pray for them? And would you do that? Even if you're not sure you really mean it, even if you're not sure you'll ever do it again, let's get a start here. Let's make our first step here. Pray for God to bless them in whatever way is best. Know that vengeance, know that you can trust him with whatever. Know that God knows what they did. Know that God is a just God. Know that you can trust Him with whatever's right. He won't simply excuse it. He won't sweep it under the rug. He won't pretend it didn't happen. He'll do whatever's right. But pray for God to give them whatever's best. Would you ask the Lord to show you what He would have you do publicly about that? Whether He wants you to reach out to the person if they're still alive or act in some other way. And then would you ask the Lord to help you to continue to model the forgiveness you've received. Father God, we come to the table of our Lord in gratitude for the grace to pay that grace which we have been forgiven. Now asking you to help us to pay that grace forward for those who need what we've received. 
As we take this bread and cup, Father, we do so in gratitude for that grace that offers us forgiveness and freedom. May we tomorrow act out what we do today for someone else who needs to feel the grace of Jesus in us. We pray in his name.